Portions of the day's programming are reproduced by means of electrical transcriptions or tape recordings. Time for School, Rock School, with your hosts, Dr. Joe Burns. That's an interesting run. I don't have time to get into it. (laughs) My name is Joe. You can call me Fred. Class is in. Rock School Radio Show, emanating from the campus, Southeastern Louisiana University. Once again, my name is Joe Burns. It always has been because my mom wanted it that way. Who are you? Monique Gregoire. Monique Gregoire. Hey, Nice day. Thanks for uh, thanks for ordering the nicest day possible. Yeah. You know, I moved out of Cleveland so I wouldn't have to deal with this kind of weather. It may <laughs> snow. Do you know that? I've heard. It I have snow. heard. It's November. And I haven't bought a lot of maternity sweaters, which yes. sucks. I have a ton of maternity sweaters. Would you like to borrow yes. any? Can Fantastic. You bring them I have one with a big Snoopy on the front, if you'd like. It's fantastic. <laughs> I've seen your Christmas sweaters. It's I'm just beautiful. Saying. It's, as when you look like this, you could hang the phone book on me, and it would just <laughs> I could pull it off. This is yet another Rock School Radio Show, where the students from my class, COM 400, the history of rock and roll and its impact on society, have shown up in the studio. We have two at the microphone right now. I'm going to try the name. I know I can do Greg Crevetto. Yes, yes. exactly. You used to be the head of the SGA. You were in charge of all kinds of students and I such. I was. Ruled them with an iron fist. Now I'm just a normal <laughs> old student doing the rock, rock show. Excellent, excellent. And over here, I'm going to try to get a Barbara Fandall. Yes. Did I get it right? Yes. All right, pull that microphone up against your face. It's not going to bite you. It won't do anything to harm you. At least it hasn't yet. That's not to say it won't. And Barbara, you uh, were not in charge of the SGA. No. No. Okay. Gosh, no. So she's All in right. charge of this project, so it's much more important. Right Fantastic. Now. There you go. Barbara, what are we talking about? Atlantic Records. Atlantic Records. Excellent. Yeah. This is one I've wanted to do. And when most people think Atlantic Records, they immediately go to Led Zeppelin. Yes. But there's a lot more to Atlantic Records than just simply they signed the biggest rock group of the 1970s. Maybe some people say of all time. All time. I don't say that. (laughs) But tell me about the beginnings of Atlantic Records. Well, it was formed in 1947, and it was formed in New York City by two men. Um, The president was... Herb Abramson, yeah, and uh, the vice president was Ermet Ergun. Ermet Ergun. That's it. Yeah, that's there it. You go. Yeah. Um, that's the name that a lot of people trip up with in terms of in the in the world of music. It'd be nice if uh, if Atlantic Records was started by Bob Jones, but it wasn't. It was started by a guy who's an alphabet soup name. Yeah, he was so. originally from Turkey. Yes, he was. Mm-hmm. Yes, he was. He's and, a Turk. And uh, he came to the United States at about 11, mm-hmm. and he actually ran into Herb at a jazz club. Is it? Is it? Are you sure it's not Herb? Herb. Herb. Yeah. With an H? Mm-hmm. Right. I know we pronounce it herb when it's a, a, a plant, herb. but I think it's herb when <laughs> yeah, it's a human being. It. Yeah, uh, They ran in, into each other in Brooklyn, actually. Mm-hmm. They right. met at a jazz club, and their interest of music actually brought them together. They had uh, a small studio at first in the back of uh, Herb's 
uh, apartment studio. Right. And they soon took out a small loan and they began recording things. Uh, their very first recording, according to most of the sources, is mm-hmm. uh, Drinking Wine by Henry Styx McGee. Right. It's Drinking Wine Spodio D. Yes. Is actually how it is. And a lot of people <laughs> believe it could be the very first rock and roll song. There's a fantastic book called What Was the First Rock and Roll Song? And of the top 10, top 15, I don't remember where it falls in there, but Drinking Wine Spodio D by Stick McGee is one of the top 15 some people believe it could be the very first one so atlantic records can lay claim to possibly having the very first you know out of you know out of their studios so you want to play it sure fantastic it's drinking wine spodio d it's uh, granville stick mcgee right here on rock school down in new orleans where everything's fine all that cats is drinking that wine drinking that mess their delight when the gets drunk start singing all night drinking wine spoody to drink wine pop pop wine spoody to drink wine Knoxville, Tennessee's favorite son, it's Stick McGee, ladies and gentlemen. Maybe the first rock and roll song out of the early days of Atlantic Records. He died at 44 years old, lung cancer. Don't smoke, kids. Don't smoke. Okay, moving to my immediate left. Go ahead, Greg. Yeah, uh, they're talking about Professor Long here. Yeah, Yeah. he's out of uh, he's out from from our area, I guess you can say. Uh, They said Erdogan was talking about how they'd heard about this musical shaman. He referred to him as uh, right from around this area. They said they found themselves in New Orleans. Uh, looking for this guy, found a ferry boat in New Orleans, took the ferry boat over to Mississippi. Um, they said once they get over there, they found a taxi driver. Uh, he'd bring them just as far as maybe an open field and was pretty much like, hey, y'all are on your own. I'm not going into this area type deal. You know, I'm not going to go uh, over here with y'all. And he said, all right, fine. So they, they go uh, into this predominantly African-American area, uh, and they find like a nightclub. They hear some music going. They go by there. They try and get in. They're like, no, you're not coming in. This, this you know, this is not your type of place. And they end up telling the guy they're from. Wait, this w- happened? Well, that, that's, that's in New you- Orleans. They wouldn't let somebody in. This is a shocker. That, no, I'm serious. It is a shocker because well, said, normally he, this is a completely inclusive place. Well, he said place. he said he was out there, and they were kind of like, well, what are you doing here? Type deal. Like we don't know who you are. We never seen oh, you. Type okay. deal. And uh, he said that they told him. Uh, they knew they wouldn't know where Atlantic Records were, so they said, hey, we're from Life Magazine. And you're like, oh, oh really? Okay. Oh, okay, well, <laughs> oh, that sounds cool. We'll put you in the back behind the bandstand. So he said that they uh, they put them back there, and they said a lot of people didn't, they thought the cops were there because they didn't know why these, you know, this white, these these white guy guys. was sitting in the back of the thing. So a lot of them kind of bailed, and they said they're, they're sitting there waiting for him to come out. And uh, he came out on stage, and they said they saw him with upright piano, a, uh, a key, uh, playing upright piano as a keyboard, a bass drum, and a pounding kick plate. And they were like, "Wow, this guy's doing it all like a one man show." Like they thought they're sure. going to see, they thought they're mm-hmm. going to see this huge, big band, and he's sitting there just doing his own thing. Uh, so he approached him after the after the show. And he said, "Wow, this is amazing. Like, I've never seen somebody do the whole thing himself. Uh, I want to sign you." And he said, "You know, I signed with Mercury last week under one name." Uh, I think he said, uh, what was his name? Roland Bird. Right. And so he sure. said, so then he said, well, I'll sign with you under Professor Longhair. So that's what it was. I mean, right. He signed with Atlantic under Professor uh-huh. Longhair. And uh, he made his, his song, the, the one that we're going to be playing is uh, uh, Mardi Gras in New Orleans. He first That's one of his first songs he recorded in like 1948, 1949, I think was the first time he created the song. And right. he re-recorded it multiple times. 
uh, especially under the Atlantic label. And that's one of the you know the bigger songs we recorded. I think they've remastered it all the way up to like 1980s. They've redone this song. I was going to say, do you songs. do you have the recording with Atlantic Records? Because he also yeah, because he did this. record it with numerous with right. numerous yeah numerous people. So yeah, I don't I don't know if it's the exact one. Uh, it, it is the Atlantic. Okay, it, it is, is the Atlantic okay, recording. So it's the Atlantic recording. He did he did do multiple songs with multiple different people. They said he right. was under. Upwards of five labels at one point, or something like that. Oh, he's not yeah. too dumb. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. what, it, what it took to make money back then, yeah. because he recorded that with Cosmo Matassa in Matassa's oh, early studio. Okay. Mm-hmm. But if you have the um, if you have the Atlantic recording, then you have it right on the money. So let's do it. It's Professor Longhair in the early days of Atlantic Records, Life Magazine, huh? That's what got him in the door. Life Magazine, <laughs> not bad. It's Mardi Gras in New Orleans, right here in Mexico. favorite sons, Professor Longhair with Atlantic Records, and was told by Barbara, one of these students who just walked away from the microphone, the reason you know it's the Atlantic recording over top of, say, the Cosimo Matassa studio is that there is a different type of percussion inside of the song. Yeah, it's the wooden knockers. The wood, No, it's wooden percussion. You don't call it that. Why can't you call them knockers? You just, it's wooden percussion, Monique. Thank <laughs> you. Going for the fun joke. What are you, 10? <laughs> yes. Gee whiz. Lady with a baby. All right, so we have two brand new students up against the microphone. Who is talking about the next song with Atlantic Records? Is that you? Okay, now you look happy to be on the microphone, so go ahead, pull it towards you once again. It's not going to harm you, and go ahead and speak up. You're normally a very quiet person. First of all, tell us your name, dear. My name is Brittany Anselmo. All right, Brittany Anselmo. Tell us about the song we're going to be listening to. It was recorded on Atlanta Records, on their sub-label, Cat Records. Cat Records. Well, what's the song? Who is the who is the band and uh, what's the song? Um, the, the name of the song is Shaboom by the Chords. Shaboom by the Chords. Okay. It was recorded in 1954. Now, do you know why there are sub-records and sub-labels and such normally at, at record companies? I do not. Well, it, it, there's multiple reasons, but normally it was because of payola. And normally it was because of by having sub-records, what they could do is sign more artists and they could have secondary corporations underneath the top major corporation, Atlantic Records, and it would allow them to distribute more artists rather than a radio station. Got to remember, radio played all the music at that time. Rather than a radio station seeing, oh, look at all these Atlantic artists. I can't just keep playing Atlantic artists. So what they would have is multiple record labels underneath it. So instead of 50 Atlantics showing up, you would have three Atlantics, two by Cat, two by what have you. Same thing with, say, Motown. Motown had five or six different labels. Mm -hmm. So instead of 20 Motown songs showing up, you'd have three of each. And it also happened under Motown, or uh, pardon me, under Payola, that you could only have so many songs by each label played, and Payola forced them to go to different things. So why they had that label specifically, I don't know, but there are two reasons why they had separate secondary labels underneath of uh, of the main umbrella. All right, tell us about the chords. It was actually their only hit song. It reached top 10 on the pop charts. Yeah. 
and it was ranked um, number 215 on Rolling Stone's list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. The record for the most recordings of Shaboom by a single group um, is by um, Harvard Gin and Tonics. It's an acapella men singing group, and they have that song on 12 of their 13 albums. Mm. Why? <laughs> Why is the best question I have right now. They said so. it's just a popular song. <laughs> okay, fine. Or they're looking to fill out their albums. Shaboom's chords on Rock School. Life could be a dream. Life could be a dream. Do, 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 shaboom. Life could be a dream. Life could be a dream. Life could be a dream. All right, coming into the first break here on Rock School, and we're not going to play a song here, but we are going to talk about a song and another guy that was early on in the uh, the world of Atlantic Records. Uh, we got a new student up on the microphone. Go ahead, dear. Tell us your name. Hi, I'm Kelsey Dunham. Hello, Kelsey Dunham. You look right. just darn happy to be here yes. at 7.30 in the morning. Loving it. Nice glasses. Thank you. Very nice. All right, so what are we talking about? Who's the uh, next artist? Ray Charles. Ray Charles. Yes. Excellent. Now, just for my own, I have to talk because I love to hear myself talk. You know, Ray Charles, and I think you have this in your notes, Ray Charles took songs from gospel yes. and turned them into rock songs. Yes, he did. You know, I hear students talking about Marilyn Manson and, and things like this and how he's anti-church and all of this. And Ray Charles was doing this back in the 1950s. Yes. Multiple, not just right. one. Oh, yeah. And catching as much flack as as you know manson did today and it was just as horrible and just as frightening so there's nothing new under the sun ray charles was just doing it back then so people who say well this is my grandmother's music who wants to listen to ray charles just as trailblazing just as offensive but it just you know didn't have him wearing two different color contacts and ripping bibles on stage you know and preaching from a pulpit so what else do we know about Ray Charles? Well, from his song, from his gospel song, um, I've Got a Woman. Right. He copied, he, wrote, he reworked it from My Jesus is All Around the World to Me. Mm-hmm. Uh, his song, I've Got a Woman, was um, taken by Kanye West. He recorded, he took in, she's, she gives me money when I'm in need. Yeah, don't 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 ever mention Kanye West in front of me again. <laughs> yeah, the picture of Kim Kardashian where she supposedly showed her rear end. Yeah. When I looked at the picture, I assumed that it would be Kanye West's picture. <laughs> I assumed that's what I now. would see. No, anyway. What else we got? Uh, well, he signed with uh, Atlantic Records in 1952. He incorporated rhythm and blues, gospel and blues together. His first recording session with Atlantic was the Midnight Hour in September 1952. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, his second recording was The Mess Around, and it was the first hit in Atlantic Records in 1953. Mm. Is I've Got a Woman is the first number one R&B hit that he had. Was it the first for uh, Atlantic, do you know? Was it first number one R&B for Atlantic? Um, Don't know? That I do not know, but I know know it was his first number one. What kills me about Ray Charles is that you have to remember, he has no sight. Yeah, so, he lost it at seven. Right. He has no sight, so there are no charts. Mm-hmm. There's no music. Everything he plays has to either be from memory or from mm-hmm. feel. Yeah. You know, he has to be able to sit down, know where the music is going, and either know it pure D from memory. Right. Or be able to feel where the music is going and take it from there. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the Stevie Wonder aspect as well. Mm-hmm. you got to understand, this guy... 
you know, you, you put a, a musician down with music and he or she will be able to fake their way through it. That's why they're right. called fake books. Not him. This He's is playing nothing. from the soul. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it just makes him all that much better. So we got people listening to us out there. We got 14 affiliates right now. And we thank them all for listening to us. We'll be back in just a minute with more students to talk about more things about Atlantic Records right here in Rock School. All right, coming out of the break, I caught a little bit of heck during the break because the student was not done talking about Ray Charles. So she told me, you get back to me so I can finish up the information I got on Ray Charles. What else do you have on Ray Charles? That his background singers, he used to have his wife and other random uh, musicians. Random as, musicians? Well, just people off the street? Female, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> Go grab me some people. <laughs> but he incorporated some more women singers and they were the cookies and then right. they performed and changed to the rayettes there you go so he had some backup singers went along yes. and the rayettes and they were really popular as a matter of fact you know when hit the road jack started that was the big oh, yeah. thing it was that famous you know call and response thing that he did at the second part of the song so mm-hmm. yeah very popular all right moving over here Aretha Franklin respects one of the absolute signature artists for Atlantic Records what do we know about Aretha Franklin the song Respect was originally written and released by Stax recording artist Otis Redding in 1965. That's right. It wasn't even on Atlantics. It was a guy from Stax down in Memphis. So, go ahead. And then a couple years later, Aretha Franklin recorded her own version. And her version was a lot different than Otis Redding's version. His version was more like, he will give his woman everything she wants. He doesn't care if she does him wrong as long as he gets respect when he comes home. Right. Aretha Franklin's version was way different. She came off as a strong, confident woman. She had everything a man would ever want, and she never does him wrong, and she just demanded respect from him. Yeah, you know, she also says inside of the song, take care, TCB. Do you know what TCB stands for? Yeah, no clue what that means. No, taking care of business. Uh (laughs) Take care, TCB, taking care of business. Nice. Any idea what she's suggesting there, dear? Not, no. No, none whatsoever? Okay, well, fine. Go ahead. I, I think the audience picked it up just perfectly. I did. Greg Crevetto over here is giggling about it, so he understands it completely. Go ahead. When Atlantic Records released Aretha Franklin's version, it actually shot to number one on both the R&B and pop charts. Mm-hmm. And it became her signature song. Easily. And that song actually was hailed as a civil rights and feminist anthem also. Oh, yeah. Also, it has to be because it, it, it's an empowerment song. Not a question, Aretha Franklin, especially with the size of voice that she has. Yeah, I'd be curious to hear how many women played that after a breakup. Oh, sure. Yeah, that and that Gloria song. Gaynor's I Will Survive. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Oy, oy, oy. <laughs> so let's play it. It's Aretha Franklin's Respect. Remember, take care, TCB. I have no idea what it means. None whatsoever. Here on Rock School.
bottom of the hour here at Rock School, and uh, students brought along a song that they didn't have some information for, so they handed it off to me. Said, "Can uh-huh. you do this?" Yeah, I think I'll give it a shot at it. Um, <laughs> Dusty Springfield, son of a preacher man. Oh, I love that song. Do you know it? Oh, yeah. Billy Ray was a preacher's son. Oh, when yeah. His daddy would visit. He'd come along. I knew it before Pulp Fiction put it on the soundtrack. Oh, did you? You mm-hmm. knew it before it was cool. Exactly. You were cool before it was cool. Absolutely. Comes from the album Dusty in Memphis, mm-hmm. back from 1969. Originally, it was supposed to be recorded for Aretha Franklin. Oh, okay. I yeah, can hear that. Yeah, it was pitched to Aretha Franklin. Her sister, Aretha Franklin's sister, actually recorded a version of it. Hmm. But, you know, that's not the one anyone knows after Dusty Springfield's went nuts. This was a Jerry Wexler, a producer for uh, Atlantic Records. This was okay. a Jerry Wexler, just genius strike move. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, obviously, who, you know, who recorded the song. Obviously, Dusty Springfield recorded the song, who was right. one of the darlings of the British invasion. Mm-hmm. She was the woman who followed the Beatles over across onto the shores, his second person of the British invasion to have a hit really? on the American chart. Not the second person to put feet on the, the soil here in America, the but the sec- second person to have a hit on the American chart. That's pretty cool. So I didn't know that. Her, uh, her career was kind of floundering, mm-hmm. and she was looking for something to do, and she gets signed to Atlantic Records, and instead of, again, putting her in bouffant hair and pretty you know dresses like they did for the British Invasion, right. they decided to do something completely different and move her to Memphis with the Memphis Cats, which worked. were... Oh, did it ever. <laughs> and again, it was it was Wexler who just stroke of genius this thing out. It was her last top ten hit, the uh, the son of a preacher man. Mm-hmm. But the entire album is just spectacular. It's her first album for um, Atlantic. You know, and oh, great things will come up. But again, right. her last top ten hit. Uh, until, if I'm not mistaken, she had a top ten hit when she uh, redid one of her songs with the Pet Shop Boys. Okay, it was either in the late '80s or early '90s. So. Hmm. Dusty in Memphis. There's a little bit of story behind it. And again, stroke of genius for the people at Atlantic Records. Yep, great song. Right, so let's get her out there kissing the son of a preacher, man. Sounds like this on Rock School. Billy Ray was a preacher's son And when his daddy would visit, he'd come along When they gather around and started talking That's when Billy would take me walking Out through the backyard, we'd go walking Then he'd look into my eyes Lord knows to my surprise the only one who could ever reach me was a searching on the back, you sang the son of a preacher. The only one who could ever move me sweet was the son of a preacher. All right, coming out of the son of a preacher man, Dusty Springfield here on Rock School. Back with the students. Who's on microphone? Who are you, little girl? Kelsey Dunham. Kelsey, welcome back. You get to do the name from Atlantic Records. The name, the name is exactly? Led Zeppelin. Right. So named, or at least the story goes by the drummer from The Who. This band will go over like a Led Zeppelin. (laughs) So goes the story. Is it true? I doubt it. But what a fantastic little story. Okay. Tell us about Led Zeppelin. Okay. Well, they formed in 1968. They were first started as the New York... New Yardbird. Yeah, they came out of the Yardbirds. Yes. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Yardbirds are still around, but they Different. they are sort of the third incarnation. Mm-hmm. If you take guitarists, there you go. Now we have the third incarnation, and it becomes Led Zeppelin. Yes, and that's when they signed with Atlantic Records. Uh, Stairway to Heaven was 
one of their big songs, and they recorded from December 1970 all the way to March 1971. Right. And it wasn't released until November 8th of 1971 on their fourth untitled album, but everyone calls it Led Zeppelin 4. Or Sozo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or Sozo. Mm-hmm. Uh, the song was written by Robert Plant and Jimmy Page. Um, in an interview with Robert Plant, he says that the song doesn't really have an actual meaning, and he says depending on what day it is, he interprets it a different way, and he wrote it. What do you think it means? Oh. You don't know? Uh, yeah. You've never you never gone that far into no. it? Okay. <laughs> I just Fine. You know, like to listen to it. I think it's a discussion of popularity. They are they're the band themselves. Mm-hmm. You gotta remember these were just musicians trying to make it. Jimmy Page was a, a session musician, so he was a working musician. But the other ones were just guys trying to make it and now they are this biggest band in the world. And I think what they did is they me personally, I think the song they took themselves and they turned them into this woman who was buying a stairway to heaven. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a, a discussion of themselves. It's a perfect song. It, yeah. it goes from mm-hmm. as as calm as you can be at the beginning and for a full seven and a half minutes, builds and builds and huh? builds. And that takes such tremendous musicianship, not to jump from zero to 10, mm-hmm. but to over the course of seven minutes, build like it does. It's, it's a brilliant, brilliant piece of music. It is. It deserves every accolade it ever gets. What else do you have? Uh, they first played their song in public on March 5th, 1971 at the Belfast Oshler Hall, and the crowd didn't did care for it at all. They wanted to listen to their old mu- like their songs that they knew. Uh, it didn't become big until 1975. It was a big public demand. Plant hated it. He wrote it, and he was like, I don't want to listen to this anymore. I'm tired of playing it. So he would go on stage, and he would change the lyrics. Yeah. I can imagine. I mean, you think about just picking an artist out of the clear blue, Pat Benatar. Can you imagine how sick she is of Heartbreaker? <laughs> I love that song. I know, but can you imagine how sick I she is it. every night for 100 nights a year for how many years? Mm-hmm. you got to believe it. So let's play it. Stairway to Heaven here on Rock School. All right, coming into the second break here on Rock School, let's talk Rolling Stones. Now, here's the thing about the Stones. Decca Records, London Records, Mm -hmm. but people don't think about them being on Atlantic, but they were. Greg Cravetto's back on the mic. Tell us how they get to Atlantic. Originally, they were on uh, Decca. That was, you know, that's when they first see the British invasion coming over, 64, that type area. Um, but they did say when I was reading, it kind of looked like the, you know their their album, their their Satanic Majesty's Request. It was a little bit more psychedelic, a little bit darker uh, for that time. But um, they kind of just, I guess, kind of moved on, and they had this story from uh, it's Ahmed, I guess. Is that, Ahmed Ergen. Yeah. Ahmed Ergen, that's his name. <laughs> uh, and he said uh, that he arrived in L.A. one morning. He was a, he had a lot of meetings, he had a lot of jet lag, and uh, they somebody t- I guess they said somebody told him Mick Jagger wanted to talk to him. I don't know who tells you Mick Jagger wants to talk to you, but oh, your secretary. But, you know, you know, just somebody just let you know. You Mr. Know, so, Aragon, Jagger. Yeah, so Jagger uh, wanted to talk to him. So he said they uh, arranged a meeting at the Whiskey uh, where Chuck Berry was playing. And he said after several drinks, the jet lag was hitting him. And uh, and he was just kind of like, you know, just kind of passing out. You know, he's getting tired, a long day. And uh, and Mick came up to him and was just like, hey, the reason I wanted to see you, my contract's up and blah, blah, blah. And they said that Ahmed, they, multiple people said like he was falling asleep, like, 
he's literally falling. He's had these drinks. He's had jet lag. He's falling asleep. He's asking his people, like, can you get me back to my hotel? Well, pretty much blowing off. Uh, Mick, he doesn't even know what he really is telling him. And uh, they said, like, people kept shaking him, like, hey, you need, Ahmed, you need to listen to this, like, uh, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And he just kept nodding off. He couldn't couldn't help himself. So, um, But Mick just kept talking about how much he admired Atlantic Label. And he went, he got back to his hotel, kind of remembered it. He kind of passed out or whatever. And the next morning, uh, they said that Mick came back to his hotel and was like, listen, I just want to let you know, I don't want to shop around. I want to be on Atlantic. And he couldn't figure out, like, why would Who, why, why are would you this talking guy? to me? And they said, he, he said he talked to the guy, and he said the – they told him, they said, uh, basically, Mick loathes pushy people. So he wasn't pushy. He was the exact opposite. He didn't really care. So Mick, I guess, just thought that was the best thing ever, that nobody, he did, the guy really didn't care what he was going to do. Well, he wasn't pushy. He was asleep. Well, that's, what, that's what I'm saying. So he doesn't like pushy people. So this guy was the exact opposite. He didn't really care if you joined my label. So he was like, all right, well. I guess I like this guy. I guess I want to sign with Atlantic. He doesn't really care. So that's he how says. he got the that's, stones. That's what he says. He says that he came up to him, wanted to talk to him, and wanted to do that. Um, and then they released, uh, you know, the the song that we were going to play, which was off of their Sticky Fingers album. Which they say that they're they're in their golden age. Some people say you know golden age. You know, a Sticky, lot of people believe Sticky it. Fingers and Exile on Main Street. Sure, the two albums they released. Uh, the two biggest albums I think they released on the Atlantic album. And then eventually ninety two they went on the Virgin. Uh, records, but uh, for that little gap in time, that's what that's the little stint they had, I guess, uh, with Atlantic. Oh, there's a lot of people that that take the stones yeah. and cut them into, you know, year to year. This mm-hmm. was their golden age. This was their golden age. And mm-hmm. if you believe Atlantic was their years, those were the albums. Yeah. And a lot of people will look at Sticky Fingers and say, "That's it." It's a lot different feel, especially from that last album. Excellent, excellent. Hey, back in a minute. Talk more about Atlantic here in Rocksville. Coming up to the end of the show, talking Atlantic Records. We have a new student up on the microphone. Go ahead. Tell us all about yourself. Explain yourself, young lady. Who are you? Um, Eva Stubbs. But Eva Stubbs. You can hi. call me Nikki. I can call you Nikki. Yes. Wow. That's that's an interesting run. I don't have time to get into it. <laughs> My name is Joe. You can call me Fred. All right. Go okay. ahead. Who are we talking about? What's the band? We're talking about Twisted Sister. Twisted Sister. Who I consider the first hair metal band. No. You don't think so? No. Oh, come come on. on. Now, I, I guess there's something to that. 1978? Well, I mean, yeah, I, okay, maybe. But but the problem is they couldn't get signed. They were spectacularly popular. But they were popular. making a lot of money before they yes. even got signed. They sold out, I believe it was the Palladium, before they even got a record deal. They were making like two to $5,000 per show. You are correct about that. The band was living in a house that they had purchased, and it's 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 like the Chiwis down here or Bag of Donuts. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a, they were a cover band that were playing their original stuff, and people were... And dressing in drag. Right, and people were knocked out. But well, that's, that's the 1970s, you know, glam thing. You know the fact that the fact that their lead singer, you know, Dee Snider, was dressing up like a woman was literally nothing new. You know, fishnets and all of that. <laughs> so, what do we know about Twisted Sister? Well, they were signed. Um, they were doing the Tube in U- the UK, and right. Phil Carson from Atlantic Records um, happened to see them and approached the band and wanted to sign them and. They didn't believe it. <laughs> of course. And, they couldn't get signed. Right. They couldn't get arrested. So um, the guy from Atlantic Records, who was Phil Carson's boss, um, 
Doug Morris, right. said, okay, you can do it, but I don't want to have anything to do with it. I don't want to see him or anything. Right. These guys so. were kryptonite. Everybody, you know, they knew how successful, they, other labels, knew how successful they were. Right. But look at them. And you then, know? right. And then yeah. MTV came out and... Kaboom. Boom. Yeah. They took off like crazy. And it had a slew of hits. Right. It's pretty amazing. And to this day, people want to see them. Definitely. Go figure. <laughs> Who knows? So let's play it so we can come back and maybe get one more in here. So it's Twisted Sister. We're not going to take it. And the guy from, what was it, uh, Animal House? A Twisted <laughs> Sister pin on your uniform. <laughs> Rock school. Okay, final break here on Rock School. Now, you're Eva, and I can't remember what I'm supposed to call you. Nikki. Okay, fine. Can I just call you Jane? Sure. Jane, good. (laughs) Jane. Me, Joe, you, Jane. All All right. right. (laughs) We're not going to play them to finish up the show. We're going to play Matchbox 20, but... Tell me about the fine, fine people, the two good young men, church-going folk of <laughs> Two Live Crew. Well, Two Live Crew, I, um, they started out under uh, Luke Skywalker Records, right? which was under Atlantic. But Luther Campbell called himself Luke Skywalker. Tell me there's your first lawsuit. <laughs> first lawsuit. Sure. Um, he was sued by, sued by George Lucas. Sure. And... Of course, George Lucas won, so they had to change it to Luke Records, and then he was called just Luther Campbell. Sure, <laughs> so, Luther Campbell. Um, they're one of the most controversial groups ever. They had people arrested for selling their records in record stores. Sure, many. He goes times. to the Supreme Court yes. with uh, "Oh, Pretty Woman" and yes, the concept exactly. of parody, and he went. He won. Now that one, he won. Yeah, but then it was later. Repealed or overturned? Overturned. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, but the thing is, his big thing is, and and I don't know that this is a grand thing, but his his big success was that you can be absolutely filthy underneath the First Amendment. Exactly. Yeah. And people, if they wish to hill, hear filth in terms of music, They'll and there's nothing wrong with it. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. If that's what you're into, you know, you can go ahead and do it. And they even named one of their albums as nasty as we want to be, or as nasty as, as nasty they want to be. As we want to be. Yeah. yeah. And. <laughs> And that's really his legacy. And then betting on college games. So I guess if if that's you want your legacy to be, you can be. And Atlantic stood by it and let it happen. So fantastic. And uh, I don't want to play any two live crew, basically because I don't want to play rap. And number two, I don't want to have to go in and bleep a thousand things out (laughs) of the whole thing. So we're going to wrap it up with Matchbox 20, who also were on Atlantic Records. So up, students. Up, students. Your name into the microphone one more time is? Eva Stubbs, but But call me Nikki. But we can call you Jane. Good. And you into the microphone are? Barbara Fando. Barbara Fando. Get over here, Greg. Say your name in there. What's your name? Greg Cravetto. Greg Cravetto. You into the microphone. Come on, say your name one more time. Brittany Anselmo. Good enough. And you are? Kelsey Dunham. I'm Joe Burns. You are? Monique Gregoire. There's too many people in this studio. That'll wrap it up. Class is dismissed. All day, staring at the ceiling, making friends with shadows on my Telling me that I should get some sleep Because tomorrow might be good for something